can open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 7. We are now in the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount, and today I'm going to end the expository part of this sermon that Jesus preached. Uh, We do have a couple of verses to go into next week at the end of the chapter, which are kind of a synopsis of what we've already learned. So we will come back to the Sermon on the Mount for one more week. But the expository part of the sermon ends today. And this sermon has been a remarkable one. It is really remarkable that we can spend so much time. I think it's been 16 months now that we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus preached this sermon in what was probably at most two or three days And the sermon is so deep that I believe that if we even started over next week, that we would find new truths to discover, more things that we could find out in the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. But if you ever wanted to know how to reach people that are stuck in complacency, people that are satisfied with where they are spiritually, people that think they've already met and have exceeded the requirements for God's kingdom, then this is where you should go. Because here in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that the soul is laid bare. There are many people who admit that they are not fit for heaven. They're scoundrels, and they know it, and they have no doubt that hell awaits them when they die. Some of them mock death. Some of them mock Christ because they really have no concept of what hell is. Uh, They refuse to believe in the extent of eternal punishment in hell, And so they go on in their sins every day, defiant against God until the day that they die. But there are other people that are very religious, and they're satisfied that they have met God's requirements. They believe they are saved. And if anyone should be allowed to go into heaven, it would be them. Uh, They think that they've done all the right things. They've said all the right things. They have their profession of faith. They've built their house of profession, but it's actually on a very shaky foundation. And it's one that will not stand the storms that beat against it. Jesus illustrated this in the end of this sermon by talking about two types of men. And this is the method that Jesus used to close out the sermon. Uh, There's always two things that are contrasted. There are two gates. There are two ways. There are two destinations. There are two trees. And now finally he comes to two men who built two houses and had two very different results. Now, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 7, stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew 7, verse number 24, the last illustration in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to look into your word today. I ask you, Lord, you'd open up your word to us today. I, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be among us and would convict our hearts of the truths that are found here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount actually begins in verses 13 and 14. 
Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And the rest of the sermon from verses 15 down through verse number 27 is an illustration of those two verses. This is a test that Jesus wanted each of these people to perform. He wanted them to look very deeply down into their souls, and he wanted them to see if their profession of knowing God and of knowing his kingdom was actually real. A moment ago, I said that there are some who admit that they're not fit for heaven. They are defiant about it. They're wicked. And so they care very little at all for religion. They really have no concern about their souls. But these are not those kinds of people, not these that Jesus spoke to. These are ones who care very deeply. And so they were listening to Jesus because they had confidence in their religion. And I wouldn't be surprised that rather than find out that they were just actually wrong about what they believed, that as they listened to Jesus, they may have been looking for some confirmation that their beliefs were actually right. But Jesus brought them no such assurance. Instead, he exploded what they had been taught. He obliterated all of the false teachings. He left them to a, at a point where they actually had to make a decision. Is my faith real or is it not? Am I going to heaven or am I not? Am I righteous with God or am I not? And at the end of verse number 23, they must have understood that their faith was not real. They were not going to heaven. Because what Jesus did was to hit them at their place of most vulnerability. He asked them a question, and we find it actually in the book of Luke when a similar message is preached there. Why did they call him Lord, and yet they didn't obey him? And that was an exposing question. They were now at a place of where they were stripped of their self-righteousness. Their souls were laid bare. The evidence... For righteousness is obedience to the will of the Father, and they actually had none. And that's really the key to the whole discourse of the Sermon on the Mount, of what does righteousness consist. Perfect obedience is the answer to that question. And so he begins verse number 24 with, Therefore, therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. That's the requirement that Jesus gave. It wasn't just hearing what he had to say. Jesus didn't intend that he would preach this message for informational purposes only. This wasn't something that they were to take what he said, to hide it in the recesses, the dark corners of their mind. But what they were to do was to understand that the kingdom of heaven consists in doing the will of the Father. This is what they were supposed to put into practice. And that evidence that you are a Christian, that you truly know God comes from a heart that's been purified by faith. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so our faith is always demonstrated. A pure heart is always demonstrated by our obedience. And so this part of the sermon has nothing at all to do with people working for their salvation. That's not what Jesus says, but rather what we're looking at here is the proof that you actually are saved. How do you know that you really are born again? And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus says obedience is the answer to that question. Obedience to the commands of Christ. So we have this final illustration. And as we've looked at this for the past two weeks, we started with the contrast of construction. 
And Jesus was a fine illustrator. He made his words very simple so people could understand. He, he got points across very vividly. And so he used something that was in their everyday experience. He said that right profession in God is like a house. And he said the wrong profession in God, a wrong profession of faith is also like a house. And one of those houses is built correctly and the other house is built incorrectly. The house that's built correctly is the one that has a foundation that is firm. The righteously obedient are like the wise man. And he was very careful that he built his house on a sure foundation. And he did that so it would withstand the storm. So he dug down deep into the earth. He went past the sand. He went all, all the way down past the unstable soil. He went deep enough until he found the solid rock. And there he started building his house, laying his foundation upon that rock. Now the meaning of this is very clear in this example. Jesus said that this foundational rock is his teachings. He that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is like a wise man that built his house upon a rock. And so he's here speaking of the truth of Scripture. He's talking about the Bible, the teachings of the Bible. He speaks of everything that he had told them. Jesus is the living word, the Scripture tells us, on which you build your spiritual house. Now, on the other hand, he says that there is another house, and this house is built incorrectly. Many people will move into a house, and they, 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 it looks good as far as they can see. They see the, the paint, and they see the shiny floors. They see the windows and the beautiful landscaping that's around the house, and they really don't care too much to get down and to examine the foundation. They just assume that everything's all right. But if you begin to inspect very closely on a ha- of a house that hasn't been built correctly, if you inspect the one that doesn't have a faith that's built upon the rock of Jesus Christ and his sayings, then you'll find a house, you'll find the signs of a house that's built on sand. And that sand is a shaky foundation. The owner does not dig deep. He doesn't go far enough. He only has a surface relationship with God. And the whole point of verses 21 through 27 is that of introspection. It's like calling out a home inspector and asking him to go over the entire house and to look and find and see if there are any faults there, if there's anything wrong. And when you begin to inspect the house of a man who is spiritually inept, someone who hasn't built his faith correctly in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find all kinds of signs in his life that it's not been done right. And we discussed that in the last message. Let me just give you those signs once again very quickly. You can tell that a house has been built on sand if this person has reservations about doing Christ's commands. If this person has religious activity for the wrong reasons. If he regularly sins but he refuses to repent. If he rests in what he already knows so that you can't teach him. If he regards the word, he hears it, but then he readily forgets it. And so here we're told to inspect our spiritual house, and we've gone over this for several weeks now. And all this time, you've had opportunities to look into this matter and to check it out. Are you really a Christian? Is your house really been built upon the rock, or is it on the sand? And you should know that by now. And so that was the intention. It's to, it's to get you looking. It's to get you inspecting your own life. And there has been time to do this. And the point of Jesus' sermon is not that your foundation is shaky, your foundation is built wrong, and so you can't do anything about it. 
He wasn't announcing their doom just yet, but he was telling them that there is a time of God's judgment that's coming when God will inspect your spiritual house. And when God does, it's either going to stand or it will fall. And so he illustrates all of that by the next part of this when he talks about the houses, and that is the stability in the storm. The stability in the storm. And it's either going to be one of two ways. He says, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. It'll be that way, or it'll be the other way. The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So we're going to look at some aspects today of real faith. What does real faith, of what does it consist? And one of the things that we find out about real faith is that real faith withstands hard rain. The stability of the house is determined by what happens in the storm. And when there's fair weather, you really can't tell too much difference between these spiritual houses. I suppose that somewhere in the world there's a place where the weather is always fair. I've never been there. And when Jesus was speaking to these people, they'd never been there either. So they understood what he meant when he said storms, and he talks about bad weather. And when it comes to the spiritual man, I can promise you this, that it won't always be fair weather. And it doesn't make any difference whether your faith is firm, whether it's the right kind of faith, or whether it's a false faith. Your faith will be tested, and those trials will come into your life. And these two men are are examples of that. Both of them experienced the wind and the rain. Both of them experienced the flood. The wise man experienced that as well as the foolish man. And that tells us that there is no such thing as a life of ease for a Christian. And I think that there are many people that have been sold on that idea of Christianity. That when you get saved, everything's going to go away. All the problems will melt away. You just become a Christian and that will cure all of your ills. And so they have, we have people that have problems with their lives. They're, they're looking to cure those problems. They're stuck in a bad marriage, and they think that if they become a Christian, then that will help to solve their marriage problems. They have kids that act like animals. And so they think that if they become Christians, that that's going to solve the problem that they have with their kids. They get sick, and they don't like sickness. And so they think, well, if I turn to God, if I become a Christian, if I just follow after him, then I'll have better health. And we find that people are preaching such things. The answer to a bad marriage may be that you have the salvation of the husband and the wife. But it never comes without what we're speaking about here, without obedience to Christ's commands. It may be that the problem that you have with your children can be taken care of if you become a Christian, if you're saved and and those kids get saved. But that also won't come without submission to Christ as Lord. And that means on both parts. There are people that are saved or in bad marriages. There are people that get saved when they have bad kids. There are people that are saved when they're in bad health. There are people that get saved and they're without jobs. And the truth of the matter is that those problems may actually continue in your life after you become a Christian. But the person who has his life, his, his faith built upon that firm foundation is not shaken by that. If his faith is real, if it's rooted where it's supposed to be, if it's on the solid rock, then that faith is the kind of faith that it withstands all of those different trials. 
The house doesn't get blown over. Uh, That person does not succumb to despair. You aren't left hopeless by all the problems that come into your your life. Real faith that has been dug deep holds on. It stays there. It stands firm no matter what may come. Now, I'd like for us to notice something about trials of faith. And we have that question that was in Brother Max's song, Why Me, Lord? What, what is the rain? What is the flooding? What is the wind? Where does that come from? Where do we get the storm? Where does the rain, the wind, the flood, where does that all come from? And the first answer to that question may actually surprise you because the storms may actually be afflictions from heaven. The storm that comes into your life may actually have been sent to you by God. And you think, well, isn't that strange? Uh, why would God send his own children a storm? And the chief reason is the whole point of this discussion. You need to know that your faith is real. You need to have a time of testing in your life so that you know that you really are in the faith. You need some adversity to come into your life to find out if you're genuine. And if God did not see fit to send that adversity to you, you could sit there right there in that pew and you could think that everything is fine. You could go on with your life. And then when it comes time for you to die and you enter into the judgment of God, you'll find out then that everything was not fine. And so God may send that adversity in order for you to find out where your faith is. And so a test of faith is for your assurance. Because when you have weathered that storm you know that the only reason that you could have weathered it is because you were actually a child of God. That God gave you the strength to go through it. You know, probably the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is for them to lose their husband or their wife or perhaps to lose their children. You know, that's one of the things that I think about that I would dread more than anything that could ever happen to me. My wife, something goes wrong there or one of my children were to pass away before I do. I don't want to outlive my children. That's a terrible thing to happen. And I don't want to seem insensitive to people. I don't want to be cruel about this, but I want to ask you something about it. Who is it that has the power of life and death? Is, is the power, does that power belong to Satan? Does he control that? No, only God controls that. God is the one who decides when it's time for someone to go. And when God says that time is up, God takes that person away. And there are people that are without faith in God, and they can become very angry about that. And so they're driven away from God. They don't want anything to do with God. But a real Christian, even though he may be sad, and certainly we do grieve, just like anybody else, we do grieve over the loss of loved ones. But a real Christian is one who really trusts God. He knows that God has his time, and he knows that God always has a purpose in what he does. And when God brings him through that trial that he experiences, he always becomes stronger. He trusts even more because of that trial of faith. And he knows that in some way, God will bring a blessing into his life because of it. He's strengthened because of those trials. And this is what the Word of God promises. Uh, It says that these things work together for our good. God never brings anything into a life of a Christian that somewhere, at some point, he won't realize how God has worked that out for his good. That's the promise that we have in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so there are afflictions that come from God. And what they do is they keep us in submission to God. They keep us at the place where we are in total dependence upon him. 
You know, I've never, I never cease to be amazed by those who are taken in by false teachings. A few weeks ago, uh, Zoe showed me a book that I'm sure has been used to confuse a lot of Christians. She wasn't confused about it, but after looking at that book for just a few minutes, I could see why people could become confused. And this was a book that was actually this recycled tripe that Christians that are not healthy are Christians that have not actually exercised enough faith. And the teaching of this book is that physical healing is a part of the atonement. And the refutation, the easiest refutation of that false doctrine is simply to look at the Apostle Paul. God sent him a physical infirmity. God sent him sickness. God sent him something that was very specific and pointed in its purpose. Is there anybody here who would think that Paul didn't have faith? Did Paul have less faith than a guy who wrote a book saying that healing is a part of the atonement and that as a Christian, you must always be well, and if you're not well, then that proves that you don't have enough faith? The apostle Paul prayed three times that his affliction would be removed from him, and I don't think that the prayers that Paul prayed were the types of prayers that some of us do where we are just nodding off to sleep, and we can't really get the whole thing out because we conked out before we're done. I don't think that's the kind of prayer that Paul prayed over this. I don't think it's the kind of prayer where he had to just eke out a little bit of time here or there and just devote a little bit of energy and and, and prayer time to talking about this with God. No, I think Paul was very earnest about this. I believe he went to God and he thought, God, if you would take this away from me, I'll be a greater servant for you. I'll be able to do so much more for you. But God didn't see fit to take that illness away. Instead, what God did with Paul is that he taught him a lesson of dependence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about it. He says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God uses trials for his purposes, and they work for your good. And so sometimes the affliction, the trials that come into your life, are those that have been sent from heaven. They come from God. But that's not all. Because when the storm comes and the rain falls, when the wind blows and the floods raise, these can also be assaults from hell. And by that I mean that these are things that have been authored by Satan. And of course, God allows those as well, because Satan has no power that God doesn't allow. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul discusses this. He talks about the onslaught of Satan. And he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now you notice there in verse number 11, it says that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles means the various methods of Satan's attacks. And what Satan does, he uses a lot of different things against you. Discouragement is one of his tactics. 
doctrinal errors, exasperation, compromise. Many times he tries anger, and Satan comes at you with an arsenal that seems to be in an endless supply. And it seems like that Satan has all of his time just to spend on you. And so you might very well ask that question, why me, Lord? It seems like I get it all. Everything that goes wrong. There's always something going wrong in my life. Why me, Lord? Why that? Well, if your faith is not genuine, you won't withstand that. Instead, you're going to knuckle under that pressure. You will give in. And so the storms will come and you'll be washed away in that raging torment. And I'm afraid that there may be some of you that are right there at that place. You're already floating in the flood There's a stream of iniquity that's in your life. Your faith has been proved to be false because you keep belching up evil talk and evil deeds and vile thoughts. And so you've been weighed in the balances, as God's Word says, and you have been found wanting. But real faith withstands the rain. The foundation is solid. It's built upon the rock, and that house will not be washed away. Now, there's another aspect of real faith. Uh, If you're a Christian, you'll find this to be true, that real faith focuses on the future. Now, I think there are a lot of church members that believe that the narrow gate, as they look at that in this restricted way, it is so confining, it is so difficult for them to do because they've been occupied with the world for so long. And they're afraid that if they give in to Jesus, if they surrender all to him... If they do that, then they're going to miss out on something. I mean, there's so much self-gratification in the world today. So many things that I could be doing that they complain because of the toll that it takes on the flesh to follow Christ. Now, those of you that have been in Berean for a long time, uh, you know that I am irritated by non-attending church members. Now, that doesn't mean I'm personally angry about it, because I'm not, but I do not understand this. I do not understand how a person that claims salvation would not want to worship with God's people. That, that's hard for me to fathom. And I find that that is a command that's given in Scripture, Hebrews 10.25. It's given there, and that's every bit as much a command as the Ten Commandments are a command. It's a command just like everything else that God has said in His Word, the words that Jesus spoke Himself. And so I don't understand that. All that you hear people say, well, I don't have to go to church to worship God. I can do that anywhere. And you know, I agree with that. I agree with that statement up to a point. You can worship God anywhere. And I really don't have to go into the places where you can't worship God, where it's obvious that you can't. I mean, we're all too intelligent for me to spend time wasting, uh, wasting time trying to eke out that definition. So you understand this. But I agree with the statement up to a point. You cannot worship God. Up to this point, I agree. You cannot worship God unless you worship God's way. You see, God has never put me or you in charge of the parameters of how we worship him. There is a way that God says that we worship him. And one of the things that churches have done today is that they have abandoned the teaching that Sunday is the Lord's day. You know, for centuries in the Christian church, it's been taught that Sunday is the Lord's Sabbath, that it's been changed, that this is the day that God has set apart for us to worship together. 
But instead, people say, well, no, 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 that, that's not right. Now what we try to do is uh, please make some time for worship. Let, let's just beg people to, to set apart some time of their week in order to worship. So we'll give you Friday night. We'll give you Saturday night. And then you can have the rest of the weekend for yourself. I don't find that's scriptural. You can't abandon the Lord's day for your convenience. You have to worship God God's way. And if you don't agree with me on that, that's okay. Just bring your Bible and we'll sit down and we'll discuss it. And we'll find out who's right about that. But let me go back to the original point. Real faith focuses on the future. Real faith looks at the reason why do we serve God. And the reason that we do is because there's something that's way bigger, something that's way longer, something way more glorious than anything that we find in this life. There is a future in heaven that is eternal. And there we are going to enjoy the rewards of faithful obedience to Christ. Oh, but I've heard some people say, oh, no, 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 I I don't serve Christ for rewards. I do. Most people that say, I don't serve Christ for rewards, don't actually serve Christ. See, when you have real faith in Christ, you strive for him. You strive for the rewards because there are all sorts of rewards that God gives. And one of the chief ones is our assurance. The very fact that you know that you're saved, to know that you're a real Christian. One of the chief ones that God gives is to know that you are safe and secure, that God has put a desire in your heart to serve him. And I don't know how you beat the deal that God gives. You get salvation, that's a free gift of God. He works that in you. You get eternal life, and then God gives you the opportunity to serve him. And he says, I'm going to reward you if you do. And most people that ignore the incentive of rewards never fully understand what rewards were about anyway. It sounds very noble for someone to say, oh, I serve Christ because I love him. I don't serve him for a reward. But the only problem is the Bible says that we should serve him for rewards. Why? Because that's part of the focus on the future. That's evidence that you have true faith because you believe that that reward is real. Does that make sense to you? You're not going to receive a reward for something that you don't think is real. And so if you're working for that, if you're striving for that, that means that you trust God that he's going to give it. Now, I don't want to beat the whole thing to death, but if you focus on the prize and you work for it, that is proof that you do believe that you will attain it. That's evidence of your stability. You know that your faith has been built upon the solid rock when you don't see this life as the real thing that you need to hold on to. You focus on the future. And I think some of you don't focus on the future. You don't think very much about heaven because you're too involved with the things of hell. Now that leads me thirdly and finally to what is actually the main point about stability. Thirdly, false faith caused the fall of the fool. You know what the main point of the storm is? In other words... When the Bible is talking here about the storm, and Jesus uses this example, what is the real point of the illustration? Well, the final point that Jesus makes in his sermon is the final one that I'll make in mine, that the storm that Jesus is actually speaking of is this pounding, relentless, all-consuming, great determiner of every man's faith. And do you know what it is? It's the judgment. It's the judgment That's coming. And when that storm of judgment comes, your house will either stand or fall. Now, how do I know that that's the main point? 
Well, you really can't miss it because this is the fourth time that Jesus has given it in these last few verses. In verse number 13, it was the broad way that leads to destruction. In verse number 19, it's the tree that's cast into the fire. In verse number 23, it's the false professor that's told to depart. And in verse 27, it's the house that fell, and great was the fall of it. So we find here that death is the final test for every person. When you leave this life, that's when it's too late. Now, during this sermon, Jesus spoke to people, and they were considering what he said. And while they were thinking about it, and while they were listening to him, it wasn't too late. But there's coming a day, folks, when it will be too late, because false faith is going to fail in the time of judgment. And the Bible says that the fall of that house will be great. Now, perhaps your foundation has not been discovered by those around you. You've done a pretty good job of hiding it, concealing it, so that people think that you are actually a Christian. And you know, I think that it's possible that we as Christians expect too little of other Christians. I mean, we've got the idea uh, Christianity today is so lax about serving Christ that we really don't recognize faulty faith too well. Our expectations are way too low, and I'm afraid they may be way too low for Christ himself. And so we have a hard time finding a faulty or or identifying a faulty foundation. But you need to know this for sure, that a faulty foundation will be exposed in the time of judgment. When that comes, there is no more hiding. All the sand is washed away, and the house of that, or the fall of that house will not be minimal. It will not be trivial. It'll be complete devastation, utter destruction in the eternal fires of hell. So we have here two men and two houses. They appeared very much alike in the beginning, but they are very much unlike in the ending. When the storms came and the winds beat upon the wise man's house, it stood strong. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and the result of it, and it fell not because it was founded upon a rock. Arthur Pink wrote, Here are consolation and compensation indeed. Severely assaulted and shaken their house may be, but overthrown it shall not be. And why? For it was founded upon a rock. That is to say, the profession was a genuine one, and therefore one which endures and survives every testing. It is no comfortable thing to live through such an experience as a hurricane. Ah, but dwell upon the happy issue. It is no pleasant experience to meet with the sneers of acquaintances, the loss of friends, the opposition of the world, and the enmity of Satan. But is it, is it not worth all these and much more if, like the three Hebrews, we come forth from the fires unharmed? While I do Christ's saying, Satan can gain no advantage over me. While I tread the path of obedience, the flesh is denied and cannot bring about my ruin. Neither in this life, the hour of death, nor the day of judgment will the house of such an one fall. That's the wise man. That's the person who has his house built upon the rock, the firm foundation. But then there's the other man. And so he continues. He says, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Here is the solemn contrast. Here is the fearful outcome For the one who wrecks his house upon the sand. Here is the certain fate of all who rest their hope and base their confidence on a worthless foundation. Here is the fearful ruin which overtakes the empty professor. 
He who makes no conscience of Christ's sayings, joins not practice to profession, who refuses to walk in the path of divine commandments, is headed for eternal damnation. And thus we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very simple illustration. It's a contrast between two houses, one that's built by a wise man and the other one that's built by a foolish man. And rather than being just a playful tune that's sung by a kid's choir, what we have here is the Son of God himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, standing before these people, looking sternly at them and solemnly at them. And he said to them, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And he said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? A foolish man indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we think about this illustration that Jesus has given. Each one of us is coming down to a day in our lives when we're going to stand before God. And then the foundation upon which we have built our faith will be discovered. Either we have a firm foundation that's been built upon the sayings of Christ and we have evidence that by obedience to his commands, or we have a faulty foundation where the faith is not real, and that faith that is not real will not stand the test of judgment. So, Lord, I ask you, while people today have time to inspect even further and time to find out whether their faith is real, that they would closely examine their hearts and know for sure that they know you as Savior. And, Lord, I pray that people would cast away all the confidence that they have in the flesh, all the confidence they have in the good things that they have done, all the things they think that make them righteous in the eyes of a holy God, and to understand that we have no righteousness but Christ. There is no goodness in us. There's nothing that we can offer God. The only thing that we can ever do is to throw our lives upon the mercy and the grace of the one who can save us from an awful destruction in hell. So I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to someone, give them faith today, give them understanding of your word so that they come to you and hear the sayings and build their life upon that firm foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Lord, speak to hearts today. Bless as we sing. We pray that your spirit would work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.